0: In Cleveland Heights, the question for residents is a matter of change. Signs lining the lawns, urging the more than 32,000 voters in the city to either vote to keep or change the way they've governed themselves for 98 years. And let the chips fall where they may in November. Let the voters decide what's in the best interests of our city. Citizens for Good Government has conceded this election. We all care about this great city that we call home. We all want it to be better. The
1: citizens of Cleveland Heights will have a say over who they want to be
0: the mayor. Hi, I'm Adam Dew, host of Due Diligence. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited to finally put out our three mayoral candidate interviews here as we uh, plow towards uh, the primary on September 14th. Uh, for our first ever elected mayor here in Cleveland Heights. We've recorded four interviews. Josie Moore, uh, um, the fourth candidate, has recently suspended her campaign, so you're only going to be seeing three of the four uh, interviews with Cleo Sarin, Melody Hart, and with Barbara Danforth. As always, Due Diligence is brought to you by my company, Do Media Inc. We do video production of all types, live streaming, corporate, nonprofit. Uh, political ads even. Uh, we helped flip a district on the west side recently working with Monique Smith to uh, to win her state uh, house seat. We're also brought to you by um, Eric Silverman's companies, uh, which are Heights Clothing Company, uh, Spiritwear, and uh, Dude About Town, which is Eric's art photography company. So check him out online. And uh, And also, of course, the Heights Observer. I can't thank them enough for getting behind this podcast concept. And I hope that these interviews are useful as people decide uh, make a big decision here coming up early voting starts August 17th and again that primary September 14th uh, will whittle down the field from 3 to 2 so get your uh, get your votes in in the next month today on due diligence so happy to have mayoral candidate Barbara Danforth here with us today Uh, as always due diligence brought to you by Future Heights Support Future Heights and, and their mission, I, I would assume. Are you had any thoughts on Future Heights?
1: Well, I think that there's an opportunity to build a, a bigger and stronger relationship between the city and Future Heights and really have them help us expand uh, the uh, capacity of our staff and the work that we need to get done in this city.
0: Why did you decide uh, that this is the job for you?
1: First of all, I love Cleveland Heights. It is unique in so many ways in Northeastern Ohio, not only our housing, but the residents. Uh, There are so many things about Cleveland Heights to absolutely love. And I really wasn't intending to get into this race, but as the first of the year turned around and I was expecting there was going to be a large pool of people who were going to be excited about running for this, this position. And then as time went on, the pool was pretty thin, and, and so I was calling around to, to folks, and I said, are you going to run? Can you run? Would you run? And time and time again, people said no. And so now we're into February. And why does anyone
0: want this job? Why, I, I expected more people too. What's your impression is why people
1: said no? Because they recognize how hard this job is going to be. Mm-hmm. And they are absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And so as February went on and as I was making calls, people started asking me, so why don't you run? You know, you've done this work before, why don't you run? And so initially it was like, I don't think so. But then I came to a point of saying, you know, I can't expect my city to be the best that it can be if I'm not willing to step up to the plate. And so that's really what drove me to make this decision. And it's a hard decision because I know not only is the campaigning hard, but this is only a slight precursor of what the job is going to be. And it is going to be a tough job, but a job that has potential for amazing reward for our city.
0: So this is the third interview uh, with the candidates that I've done so far. Um, I let each candidate sort of give me an idea where would maybe would you like to, to, to have our discussion? And you chose here in front of the Medusa, the Medusa building uh, in the Forest Hill neighborhood. Uh, what, uh, when we, we're standing here looking at this building, what do you see?
1: I see great potential and great disappointment. So my house is right around the corner. I walked over here this morning and Mm -hmm. this building has been vacant for all the 16 years that I've lived in my house. And every time I drive by it, I just sort of feel a sadness because it looks like it has, it does have so much potential. Um, that has just not been developed at this point. And it sits right across the street from Forest Hill Park, it sits right across the street from the Cleveland, from the rec, the Cleveland Heights Rec Center, and it sort of sits in a place where it's a gateway into the Forest Hill community. And yet, here it since, um, vacant and abandoned although in all due credit to the uh... property owner they certainly have done a good job keeping the property and as i have looked inside the building it is re- in remarkably good condition considering it's been vacant all this time but as i look at it i think what are the possibilities some really neat housing that goes up that goes out uh, building some density in this community um, i just see all kinds of possibilities but it makes me sad every time i drive by it and just see it as an empty building
0: so there was some discussion uh, a few years ago, a major tax credit potentially to rescue mm-hmm. this building. It's, it's interesting when you think about the architecture of Cleveland Heights and the stuff you want to preserve, this isn't necessarily <laughs> the first one you think about, but I guess even this one has some architectural
1: significance? Apparently it does, and when it was built many years ago, um, you know, it stood out very distinctively, I think, in this, uh, this community that is known for its older homes, and this was looking up very much of a state-of-the-art architecture. Well, not so much anymore, but there are possibilities that you can take what we have and refresh and rebuild. I mean, I even see something like a, a rooftop a, a garden and patio up there for housing, all kinds of possibilities. So again, when I drive by, I see it's with mixed emotions of the possibilities and the lost opportunities. When you
0: talk about uh, opportunities in this area, uh, do you would you support um, the East Cleveland and maybe part of the the Cleveland Heights side uh, becoming a metro park and becoming part of that metro park system. Have you thought about that? And where does that discussion sit right now? We spoke to East Cleveland City Council and Nathaniel Martin um, early or a few months ago. He's thought that it's coming, he, in his mind, it's coming. So I don't know where you stand or what you think about that possibility.
1: Well, from what I've heard, he might be the Lone Ranger in terms of that, huh? that, that kind of uh, collaboration is coming. I have heard that there is deep and strong opposition to any kind of a collaboration. Um, I think it's possible. Um, as a matter of fact, I have a call out that I need to talk to the, uh, the head of Metro Parks because I wonder, is there some way that we can put sort of a triumvirate relationship together so that it is Metro Parks, it is East Cleveland, and it is Cleveland Heights, and somehow we work a way that we work together because Forest Hill Park is an amazing park, but it's, it could be more. Right. It could be utilized more. It could be upkept in a, in a better way to make it more user-friendly. So I would really like to see us invest. And we have so many people who love our our green space. And to be able to invest more of our time and energy in upgrading and updating the green space that we have, I think would be to our advantage. But I would really like to see if there's a way that we can collaborate with with East Cleveland to do something with the park. And that would certainly be one of my priorities. I mean, I live across the street from the park and I would love to see it be even better than it is right now. I mean, you wanna draw people, right?
0: Ultimately, you want to draw people here. To Mm -hmm. come to Cleveland Heights, you're not just getting off the highway and stumbling here. You have to have a reason to come here, right? Mm -hmm. So in my mind, having this park on the Metro Parks map would be one more thing to draw people in to come here and check us out. And I think it'd be huge for this neighborhood, which is totally unappreciated Mm -hmm. uh, historically, um, and I hear people uh, next door complaining all the time about not enough senior housing and first floor masters. We have an entire neighborhood of first floor masters Absolutely. sitting right here. Absolutely. Like, I, I hope when you're out campaigning and you talk to people on the other side of town, like that there's no senior housing, that there's incredible senior housing here with, a, with his,
1: historical significance. Mm-hmm. Although the reality is not many houses are for sale over here for that very reason. Right. But you're absolutely right, we do have it, but we do also need more of uh, senior housing with the first floor masters, we need more of it.
0: Well, I think some of the people historically though on the other side of town would say that they wouldn't live over here because they, they, don't, they don't feel, maybe don't feel safe over mm-hmm. here, which is uh, another misconception that needs to be addressed, I would think, right? right like, because like they might think, I'm not gonna move from North Park mm-hmm. to, to Forest Hill, and that should be a transition that's, that people are open to.
1: Well, and I think a lot of it is just lack of understanding, lack of knowledge. They haven't been here, they haven't seen the wonderful community that, that Forest Hill is. And so you, if you don't know it, you make assumptions about it, and oftentimes those assumptions are absolutely wrong.
0: You are uh, a 16 year resident of this neighborhood, but you've, uh, tell me about your history in Cleveland Heights.
1: Well, um, I lived off of Noble Road on a street called Eloise. I lived there when I, um, actually, (laughs) I keep on remembering things about Cleveland Heights. Right after after college, I lived on Grandview. Uh I lived in one of those duplexes Mm -hmm. on Grandview for I think just a short period of time. Uh, Then moved over to uh, Eloise. Uh, That was another rental property. Brought my first house on Penfield. Uh, lived there for a while until I relocated to Iowa, where I served as the Assistant Attorney General. Yeah, what a transition there, huh? Yes. Well, one day I was walking down the street and I fell in love, uh, and my husband happened to be a medical director of a of a HMO in Des Moines. And mm. actually, Des Moines is where my, my father's family is from, so that's kind of how I got there. Oh, okay. So, I was in Des Moines, and when I came back to Cleveland, that's when I went to work for uh, Mayor Michael White, and so I was required to live in the city. Uh, when I finished that, I then moved into Cleveland Heights, uh, first lived on Chelsea which is in the Forest Hill District, and then moved over to uh, where we are now for the last 16 years.
0: And I can assume that you're a member of the Forest Hill Homeowners Association?
1: Member of the board.
0: I'm a member of the board. So I'm fascinated by the Cleveland scene, the article from four years ago, uh, fascinates me about the drama with uh, Forest Hill wanting to secede from Cleveland Heights. Am I safe to assume that if you are not elected mayor that you will not uh, try to bring uh, Forest Hill to uh, to its own to become its own city
1: No, <laughs> and and I think you know there were there was a lot of drama going on and I don't know all the details That's that's sort of part of a history that the folks don't like to talk about But there was but a moment right where was, where there was, there was th- a and it was almost
0: a, it seemed almost tongue-in-cheek Like looking back that like they really the people that wanted Forest Hill to secede from Cleveland Heights and East Cleveland and become its own community were just sort of trying to drum up interest in the neighborhood right is that correct
1: and you know the 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 challenge is that part of Forest Hill is in East Cleveland and part is in Cleveland Heights and that creates all kinds of challenges in terms of the provision of services and snow getting uh, uh, shoveled and all those things so it really is a, a challenged community but I do think it was tongue in cheek, and I think you're absolutely right. They wanted to bring more attention to uh, the Forest Hill district because it's an amazing district, and wanted to make sure that they were getting all the services and the visibility that that they were due.
0: So you uh, you came back to Cleveland, and you I was looking at your bio, and you looked you worked as a prosecutor, uh, the head prosecutor in this for the city of Cleveland for four years, um, which I think would probably translate pretty well To if you're if you're mayor you're also the safety director right, That's right. can you talk about how those te- those two things might service each other
1: well I think one um, having been the prosecutor for actually three years because I started at the law department as a chief counsel uh, then was promoted to uh, chief prosecutor and so as chief prosecutor I work very closely with the police officers and I understand policing uh, from an almost on-the-ground perspective and I appreciate how difficult that job is, how dangerous that job is. That particularly in the city of Cleveland, when they put on their blues and they went out, they were literally putting their lives at risk all the time. And it was not from the career criminal, it was oftentimes people who were substance abusing and just out of control. Um, It was a variety of things, and and that danger came from all directions. So I appreciated that, but I also was aware of the fact that uh, Cleveland, I think, had about 2,000 police officers at the time, and I would venture to say 97 or 98 percent were amazing people. But there was 2 or 3 percent that were really troubling. And so we had some, um, I had some encounters with them and really towed a line that, um, you know, there are certain ways that you have to act as a police officer no longer. How long you've been out there? Well, I, I would translate that into Cleveland Heights. Very, very different environment. You know, our crime, um, even though people are feeling like crime is bubbling up now, it is little things. It's cars being broken into. It is petty, um, petty things that are happening. But I've also seen that since this pandemic, um, domestic violence has been inc- on the increase, which mm-hmm. is is um, sort of a nationwide experience. Mm-hmm. So we need to find ways, first of all, I think, to, to further support the work that our police officers do. For the most part, I think the work that they do is is good work. But we're a different country, a different city today than we were five years ago. And as I have said, um, we can't always do what we've always done with policing and expect a different result. So one, there are a lot of communities that are doing a lot of work now around best practices and police work. And so I know that the the police chief Mecklenburg is doing some work with Ronnie Dunn now and and looking at some of those best practices. And I know that our policies are under review and all that is appropriate. I know that there's some work done and being done around those calls that involve mental health, uh, calls around domestic violence. And and again, these are ways to support our police force. Just being open, sorry to interrupt, just being open to that idea is new in policing, right?
0: Being open to having your policies reviewed from when you were with Michael White in the early 90s, good luck, right?
1: (laughs) Well, because we could always do what we'd always done. You know, we have gone through really a radical change in in policing, not only with community relations, but just the whole um, environment around policing is different now. Um, And so, In addition to really looking at best practices and looking at new ways of doing things, we also have to be mindful that the police need to be very intentional about improving, enhancing their community relations. Mm -hmm. Because even within our city, there are those who believe, with justification, that there are two ways of policing in the city, and that can never be an acceptable uh, belief.
0: Do you have a firm stance on, police chases are an ongoing issue and how you handle those handoffs and whether you do it or whether you don't. We talked a little bit, again, bring Nathaniel Martin from East Cleveland. He said their policies are under review and he thinks they'd like to just stop the the policy altogether of having police chases unless there's a, a clear warrant
1: involved, right? Do you have any um, any thoughts on, on police well, chases? Well, police chases, we can just look to East Cleveland and know how many injuries and, you know, really serious injuries have occurred. And I think unless there is a chase of somebody that is a known um, felon of a violent crime, we've got to be very careful with them. Now, I appreciate the councilman's idea. I don't know that his police chief is in agreement with that. (laughs) Um, And so again, but that, that really requires, I think, for Cleveland Heights and the mayor to have a better relationship with, not only the mayors around us, but the East Cleveland mayor we need to be talking to council we need to be our council and their council are, are as mayor and their mayor need to have conversations about how we best protect both of our cities and so i have not had that sense in the past that cleveland heights has really reached out to east cleveland we sort of know it's there hope it stays there but they're a contiguous city they are our neighbor and we need to treat them like neighbors
0: looking at your again going back to your bio you made a transition in 94 from city prosecutor to family services? Were you not getting everything you wanted out of life as a prosecutor? Did you decide you wanted to make a switch? Because the, the rest of your career, uh, for the next 20 years, looks like you had a change of, uh, of just where you wanted to focus your energy.
1: Well, actually, in the prosecutor's office, one of the things that I spent a lot of time doing is prosecuting domestic violence cases. And that really got me into the social services and the dynamics that surround domestic violence. As a matter of fact, we worked on a multidisciplinary team to really be able to provide greater protections to the victims of domestic violence. So that was really kind of a handoff to looking more at the social service side of the world. And interestingly enough, my undergraduate degree is in social work. Hmm. So, um, as I started working in this domestic violence, I began to see, you know, look at the connection of the domestic violence and all the other circumstances that surround lives that lead to this kind of violence in a home and, and what it's, what impact it's having on children. So to move to the Department of Children and Family Services really wasn't that big of a leap and When I was working in the prosecutor's office, I actually adopted my daughter, who was um, in the custody of the Department of Children and Family Services. So again, there were a couple of direct connections to that department, but the fact of the matter was I didn't last in that job too long, it was um, very emotional, it was very painful, because as the uh, senior legal administrator, I saw the worst of the worst cases, and the things that adults do to children was just mind-boggling once a quarter i had to convene a um fatality review committee we met down at the coroner's office and we reviewed the cases of children who had died while in uh, cuyahoga county custody we had some six thousand kids there but to review these cases and the circumstances of their death um, so that was a short-lived experience uh, and very painful emotionally painful
0: you you probably didn't think you were did you know you were getting into a job that was potentially more Um, more difficult to deal with emotionally than, I mean, the prosecutor's office, it's not a, it's not a joy ride. I was putting
1: people in jail all the time, you know, that was not so much fun. No. Um, but I did feel in the prosecutor's office that I did have some positive impact on behalf of the the victims So that, that was, that was satisfying. Absolutely not. I had no idea. I had no idea of the depth of the pain and the struggle of so many of our families.
0: Um, and then you went on through what you're most known for in the Cleveland area I would say is, is your work 16 years or 15 years at the YWCA and you and leading that organization uh, what are your biggest takeaways and things you're most proud of from your time at the YWCA
1: well um... Many takeaways, many many points of pride, but when I took over the YWC, the board told me that the, the organization had some challenges and I quickly determined that they had some very large challenges. Um, one, we did not have enough revenue to really cover our expenses, our, the staff morale was very low, our, we had still had the swim and gym facilities, uh, we had one in Middleburg Heights and one in East Cleveland and they were both in terrible condition. And so when I came on, the board said, let's sell those buildings because we need the revenue. And I said, there's just no way these buildings are in terrible condition. And the building in Cleveland, in East Cleveland, we need to renovate that building because the kids in East Cleveland need a a renovated, clean, lovely place to learn, to grow and to swim. So the board said, well, we can't do anything about it because we don't have any money. I said, give me a year. (laughs) And so I went about in the course of that year, I begged for money, I collaborated with people, I went back and begged for more money. But within a year with some major um, uh, collaborations, I was able to put together $500,000 to do the renovation in that center. Now, it was hard, hard work. I mean, there were many nights that I didn't sleep because I didn't know how I was going to pay for it. But you know, when you're doing the right thing for the right reasons, resources become available. So that renovation was a real, I was very, very proud of it and the kids just loved it. Excellent childcare, excellent programming, we were really a great service to, um, to the community. But then the other thing, um, so we served women who were homeless, victims of domestic violence, but then we built, we created the Women's Leadership Academy. And that's another source of great pride. We looked around the greater Cleveland community and and realized that there were very few women getting into the C-suite in our corporations here. So we said, we need to do something about it. We created two cohort programs uh, modeled off of kind of the leadership Cleveland model. so they met for a year. One cohort of new leaders, one cohort of more seasoned leaders, and we gave them strategies and skills so that they could be more efficient and effective on their career advancement. And so in the height of that um, program, we were generating as much as a half a million dollars in earned income for the YWCA every year. And so now almost a thousand women have gone through that program. And up to the um, pandemic, that program was still uh, going strong.
0: And then you moved on. And then let me tell you about
1: (laughs) the last project we did. And again, this was about restructuring our our, um, how we addressed our, our mission of eliminating racism and empowering women. And so we did a major restructure of our services and turned our attention to teens aging out of foster care. And so that's when we built 22 single occupancy apartments in our administrative building for teens aging out of foster care. So that was a whole mindset shift on on what cohort group of young women that we could maximize our services for.
0: Um, that's still going strong? It's still going strong, yeah. yes. No, they make, it makes sense for sure that they need that bridge support mm-hmm. right to go on to adulthood for absolutely sure. um,
1: not only the housing but all the wraparound services that they need
0: um, so when talking about wraparound services uh, I encourage you to keep an eye on Noble Elementary uh, as, as I move on to sort of talking about the schools for a second Noble is going to be a community a true community school moving forward and it's, it should have uh, a lot of those services probably that you were providing the YWCA available in one location Supporting that that entire neighborhood, mm-hmm. um, uh, so I encourage you to, to to keep an eye on that as that rolls out this year. Um, so, and and I'm a you know public schools advocate. Everyone knows that. Um, so when when some of the people that I'm friends with look at your resume, they get a little <laughs> nervous about the charter school background, right? Yeah, absolutely. So what do you want to tell the people about? Maybe what you learned about. Um, I know it, it was a it was a, and I'm not the kind of person that's going to rip all charters. I'd never do that. It was a nonprofit, which yes. at least I appreciate that much. Mm-hmm. That it was a nonprofit charter that you um, that you managed that that whole organization. Right. Um, and it was mostly for special needs kids, right? It
1: was children primarily. So, what only- did you learn
0: from working in the charter school industry, and and what do you think about um, uh, how that translates into what you're going to be doing?
1: So, as you noted, it it was for children with learning disabilities. Those were on the autism spectrum, those with ADD and ADHD, and primarily our schools were in mid to the southern part of the state and in um, communities that really did not have the capacity to serve children with learning disabilities like we could just by the economy of scale. Um, but I hear many people saying that charter schools are wholly unaccountable. I had a whole department that did nothing but accountabilities. You know, we were filling out reports, we were giving you know all this information. We had the same level of accountability as the public schools did. And so I think that is a misconception. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that the, the, uh, the publics hated us. And I was always very sad about that because yes, I understood the e- economics that our vouchers took money from their budget and the way the voucher monies were extracted from the budgets really was unfair. But what I recognize is that our children could not have been served. Most of the kids who came to us had failed in public schools. And so they came to us because even in your best school districts where I think Cleveland Heights has a 13 to 1 ratio, ours was either 8 or 9 to 1 because that was the level that our children needed of attention. They needed special um, uh, uh, furniture to sit on so that our ADD kids who were, who were busy, they could, they could swing and rock and still be engaged in the class. So I believe that the most important thing about education is what is in the best interest of the child. Now that brings in a whole lot of things. I'm an absolute supporter of public schools because for most children, that is the best option. An option particularly in Cleveland Heights where they get a very diverse group of children that they are in interacting with. And when you interact with diversity within your schools, then as you become an adult, you know folks who don't look like you. You know how they, they live, you know their priorities. And so it tends never to allow those walls of, of differences to build. So public education is so important, particularly in our community.
0: Um, and what's been your experience so far? I know you've, you're trying to develop relationships, like with Liz Kirby, with mm-hmm. Superintendent Kirby. Uh, what are you What are you seeing? What are you What are you um, What are you getting to learn more about our schools right now?
1: Well. Um, it's an ongoing education about the vouchers i mean i certainly understood it when i was in my school and, and understanding just the complexity and, and now the evolutionary of of evolution of what's happening but the school funding is just so troubling you know everybody talks about you know we need to build our children they, need, they are our future and yet there's really been no legislative a commitment and demonstration at the state level about how much we should be valuing our education. But when I talked to uh, Superintendent Kirby, I asked her, what would you like from a mayor? And she said, I would just like um, more support. And she's absolutely right. I mean, uh, our ability as Cleveland Heights to survive and thrive is in part due to the po- uh, to the quality and the relationship to our school district. So when young families are coming to Cleveland Heights, they look at the housing and they find amazing housing opportunities, but then they want to know about the schools. And so we need to be able to express to people who are interested in, in having their kids in our school system how great our schools are. And it's not just new people, all of our city needs to know that because all of us support our school system.
0: Yeah, when I battle on Nextdoor with people about, you know, they say the schools are unusable, they're basing that, that impression off of a couple of scores from a website. Yeah. Uh, and it's a constant battle because they have no first-hand knowledge. Mm-hmm. Go visit the schools, go see for yourself, and I think you'll come away with a different impression. And that's why I just encourage people generally when they're deciding, oh, do I want to send my kids out to the Chagrin Valley for school every day or do you want to send them to your local school? Just put it on the table, ideally. That's all we're asking, I think, is that people at least put it in the discussion. Is that too much to ask?
1: Yes, it's too much to ask. Oftentimes for people to do due diligence. Right. But I think we can make it easier for them. I mean, I think, you know, as I was suggesting to uh, Superintendent Kirby, reconsider your marketing plan. So, you know, you need to have students, the diversity of students in your schools, you know, regularly putting out, whether it's on, on Facebook or in some sort of a, a packet that we send out to realtors, just the, 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 um, the kind of education that all of these students are getting. Um, that's the kind of information we need to be putting out. We need to be hearing from parents. So I had two foreign exchange students living with us for a whole year and so I was in that school, I was in Heights High School all the time, and I was just amazed at the quality of work that was going on, the opportunities that were available. Our girls went to, where well, they were in the vocal program, and so they went to New York City. They were doing some sports, they went to Tennessee, they were doing something around some history, and they went to Washington, D.C. And it was not just our girls, this is what was going on in the school. So there was an amazing education there. But I knew that because I was a parent. Right. If I weren't a parent, there would be a lot I wouldn't know about how wonderful our schools are.
0: Oh, at a minimum, I, I encourage people to not badmouth the schools, Absolutely. if you don't have first-hand knowledge, because it's not in anyone's interest. It's not right. in Cleveland Heights' long-term interest for people to, as their neighbors move in, to sour them out of the gate, right? At least let people make up their own minds.
1: Right, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. Right. But then again, I would, I would encourage the school board and the district, that we know there's misinformation out. It therefore becomes incumbent upon the school board and the school and the city to make sure that there's adequate, maybe even over-communication going out so that this misinformation goes away.
0: Um, I agree uh so some other sort of hot button issues that you'll have to deal with uh, uh, if you assume this position uh what do you when people talk about severance what do you tell them about severance
1: severance is one of the reasons i'm in this race so i live up the street i have a dog and for years we walked up monticello cross and we did laps around severance and over the course of 10 years i saw severance going from a sad place to a real embarrassment and um, it's just unacceptable. Uh, It's a complicated project, uh, and it's a project that needs attention on January 2. It's going to take 10 years maybe to do all that is necessary to do, but clearly that is a prime opportunity to do some amazing things for our city. And I've been talking to people because four or five years ago, there was a large gathering of folks who were envisioning what could happen at Severance. And I would gather those folks back together, look at that that report, look at their ideas, and then see if we can update them. Are there new things out there that we need to be thinking about? Um, So that has got to be a priority almost from day one because we know how long it's going to take. And if we don't start it on day one, we're going to be here five years from now having the same conversation about isn't it too bad about Severance? And so people say, well, we don't own the property. That's absolutely right. But the owner is a businessman. It's a piece of property. It has a price tag on it. And so we need to be able to sit down with him and express to him how we are interested in in recovering or taking back that property. But when we go there we need to be able to say we've got a couple of developers that have some ideas and want to work with this so we've got to say not only do we want to take this but this is what we want to do with it so it's going to take a lot of work but i believe there are great ideas here in the city already i know that there's been planning done around it so now we just need to take our studies and our reports off the shelf dust them off update them and get working on it
0: are you comfortable with uh Lee Meadowbrook moving forward before we have a new mayor
1: and what are your thoughts on Lee Meadowbrook? Um, I would like to see the study that indicates that we need more luxury apartments in that location. We've got top of the hill and I understand that, that those are going to be luxury expensive apartments and I love that we're bringing in that, those kinds of new residents but do we also need that in Lee Meadowbrook? And I am troubled by the fact because I see so many people who are looking for apartments but can't afford three or $4,000 a month on an apartment, but they could be in Lee Meadowbrook, which is much more of a, a middle-class environment and they could be living there. So I would love for this project to not to be finished off and all the uh, all the, the bows tied up on it before the new mayor takes over. Um, and um because I, I just think that we need to think differently we need to look at our current the current senses and see who is in our city and be real clear about what do the people in our city need in terms of housing one of the things that i've been concerned about is it seems like we say okay lee meadowbrook we need housing developers what do you want to do and the developer tells us they'd like to build luxury apartments but well, what do we need We should say we need more modest apartments up there and this is what we'd like them to look like and we want some green space around them. Now we go out and look for developers who we have seen do this work in other cities and specifically engage them to come back and, and bid on our project there. And then when they come into our city, we make it as easy and as efficient and effective as they can to get their projects done. But we decide, not the developers decide, what we need at our locations
0: let's try and let's hit the EPA consent decree It's going to be the probably the major issue uh, over over the next 10 years to deal with um, what are your thoughts on where it stands right now on the money coming in from the um, uh, recovery plan act thirty nine million dollars we're getting uh, from the recovery plan act would you support putting two-thirds of that money just like towards the, and and that might already be settled, to be honest. Um, Maybe we had to do that. I'm not sure about all the details around the EPA consent degree. If we had to put that much money towards it, to me, it seemed a little premature, Um, you know, with the infrastructure plan coming down the pipe that Mm -hmm. maybe um, we might be able to, uh, to leverage some of that towards dealing with this problem with our sewers. What do you... Um, What are your thoughts on the EPA Consent Decree and where it stands right now?
1: Well, I'm not one to throw shade, but I must admit, I am pretty annoyed at our prior council that kicked this can down the road for so long. That is just unexcusable. And I hear people talking about they didn't know about it. You know, I can't imagine a project this significant and council wanting to say now that they didn't know about it until recently. But anyway, history is history. This is where we are now. So you're right. The system is 100 years old, it needs to be completely replaced, 540 million is the price tag on it, and it is a multi-decade project to get done. Um, and so on June 1, Council had to submit, and they did, uh, a, a plan for project, uh, phase one of the project. It's uh, the first 10 years, it, is, it has a price tag, I think, of about 40 million dollars, uh, just to do some of the more, most urgent work. Now, council, in all fairness, decided that they were think- they would like to put 28 of the 38.8 million that we're going to get in ARPA funds toward this project. Um, and they're doing it because they did the cost-benefit analysis, and with 28 million, they know that they do not have to raise our sewer rates for the short term. Which I appreciate because nobody wants our rates to be any higher.
0: They're already sky high.
1: They're already sky high, and I appreciate that, and particularly people who are on fixed income. Sure. You know, any kind of an increment is is problematic. But I want to think about this in a new and more innovative way. I can imagine spending half of that money, 19-20 million, toward doing work with the EPA on that project because we need to demonstrate to the EPA pretty immediately that we are in a good faith place of getting some work done. Right. So that is clearly a necessity. But then I would like to reserve 19 million to invest in the future of our city. So whether we're talking about new business attraction whether we're talking about some incentives that bring in a developer that does this, whether it talks about giving us some cushion to work with the folks at Severance to get that working, we need to be investing in our future. This is a windfall, and we must manage that money very carefully, not just to take care of our past challenges, but to set a foundation for our future. Now, what I think that the the residents are entitled to know, if at $28 million, that means no increase in your Um, in your sewer bill. What I don't know is if we put 19 million up, what would the increase be specifically? Now, if it's $100 a month, we all say, well, that's easy, that's no, but suppose it's $5 a month. You know, would you rather spend another $5 a month and see our city grow, or is it just out of our reach because the the sewer bill will be so high? So I think there's a cost benefit analysis that is critical as we make decisions about how we spend that $38.8 million.
0: Yeah, I'd love to see the numbers on how they came up with. That's the number we have to send Mm -hmm. right now, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And where and like that that windfall, right, is coming in. Where where was that 28 million going? to If that's what the number needs to be, where was that going to come from if we didn't get this? Well, we knew
1: that that money was coming. We knew some amount of money was coming in from Arpa. And so no, but like where
0: would we have if 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 28 million? Where's that 28 million come from next week if we don't have that Arpa money? It would have come
1: from our sewer bills going up
0: but by how but like, again like it's almost an, the problem is unfathomable in the the numbers needed right like mm-hmm. we cannot spend i don't know that we can possibly raise 540 million dollars like bankrupt the city exactly mm-hmm. you're absolutely
1: but, right and we are certainly keeping our fingers crossed that the infrastructure bill will have some provide us with some relief but that is down the road a bit even in, you know yeah. because it's still in such flux so and we now have to do something right now
0: just circle back for a second, we're wrapping up here, but to circle back, you um, you were a supporter of moving to a strong mayor. You weren't planning to run for mayor when you supported the concept. So why were you in support of Cleveland Heights moving to a strong mayor?
1: I never quite got this concept of city manager. Um, where you have the staff that reports to a city manager, who reports to the council, and the council is not only the legislative, but the executive branch. And you have council that are all at large. It felt like there was no real accountability. And my specific um, experience was, several years ago, I called the city manager and wanted to sit down and have a conversation with her about severance. And so we scheduled a lunch meeting and um, just before, I mean, minutes before the meeting, something had come up and she canceled. And I reached out to her again to reschedule and didn't get a response. I reached out again and didn't get a response. And then I reached out to council, and to see if I could just talk to somebody to find out what was going on. What could I do? Where could I? Was there anything I could do? Didn't get a response. And so at that point, I just kind of threw up my hands and walked away. And I saw things going on in our city. Severance just continuing to deteriorate, and that made me really kind of angry, but did not know how to have any impact in my city. And frankly, that's one of the things I'm being criticized about. You know, what have you been doing in the city? Well, if I could have, I would have. And when somebody asked me to be on the Citizens Advisory Committee because somebody knew somebody who knew me, I served on it. But, you know, that's how things, I'm afraid, happen In, in the city Administration, if you you are involved because you know somebody who knows somebody who is you know getting a committee or a task force together, and so that is problematic. There are a lot of people in this city who want to be able to contribute their expertise, but nobody has asked them, and that's just unacceptable. So yes, I think when I, and then the other thing that I looked at in terms of a, of a city manager, you know, a lot of my work has been, a lot of my career has been in the private sector. Where else do you have a $62 million enterprise that's run by seven part-time people? You know, it just doesn't happen. Even seven part-time people with a COO, which would be the city manager kind of role, it doesn't happen. So I think for years the city manager model worked because the city was less complicated, it was less inundated with major challenges, but now we need a mayor who is visionary and courageous to make hard decisions. Because whatever the decision or whatever the issue is, severance, you know there's gonna be five different camps of people who think we should do something different. Mm -hmm. The mayor is going to really have to work, influence, but ultimately put a stake in the ground on one of those ideas and then drive it forward. And have four other groups, camps of people that are gonna be very angry. But the mayor has got to be the one that brings people together, educates, communicates, helps people understand why this decision was made, why it's necessary and how we move forward. Because the first question to anybody is, do we want to do nothing? And I think everybody agrees that's not an option. Then we've got to make a decision and a mayor I think is in the best position to drive those projects forward.
0: Last couple things, uh, city administrator, you're gonna have to nominate someone to come in and, mm-hmm. uh, and ha- hopefully, I believe city council has approval. Uh, rights on on, Mm -hmm. whoever you decide to put forth. Have you put thoughts into who you'd like that person to be? Do you um, have any? uh,
1: No, not yet. Um, I have to the extent that I would like to, without making specific indication, make sure that very early on in the administration, we have continuity because you know, on day one, I, as a new mayor, will be spending a lot of time doing a deep dive into each one of our departments, really understanding its strengths, its challenges, where it needs to be supported. In the meantime, we need to have somebody in City Hall who knows how to get the garbage collected every week and, and the snow plowed. So initially, I would like to see some continuity. But also, the, the mayor has a responsibility of, the first mayor has a responsibility of really creating the job description. You know, what does this city administrator role need to be? Then once the the job description is is, uh, developed, then we need to identify the skill set. And fortunately, you know, I worked in an executive search firm, and so I understand, you know, all that that personnel piece of it, because I've worked with companies as we've created new positions. So I understand that, but for the first period, early period in the administration, it really is about understanding in a deep and broad way how the city operates now, what cultural shifts are going to be needed so that it operates in a different environment, uh, in a different culture, and then based on that data, then to formulate the job description and the skill sets that will be necessary. So to answer the question, do I have somebody that I'm thinking for this job? Absolutely not at this point, because I don't even know what's needed.
0: Uh, anything else you'd like to say that maybe sort of why you and not, one, not that not you have to name anyone in specific, but why you
1: versus one of them? Well, as I continue to say and as I continue to be impressed by, the first term of the new mayor is going to be so hard. And we have one chance to do this transition right. And how we do this transition is going to affect every one of us in the city, not just for years to come, but for decades to come. And so I have done this work before. And for me, this is not a career path for, for you know four, or six, or seven terms. This is my bringing my skills, my experience to the city that I love. To make this transition the best that it can be. Um, I love the city and I want this to happen right. And I believe that I have have done this and can do it again. And another thing about just how I see the city, the first term is going to be hard. But one thing that I think that most um, uh, people in politics don't do is raise up the next generation. And so I'm an executive coach my coaching practice in the last several years has focused on new and emerging leaders one of the commitments that i'm making to the city of cleveland heights if i'm elected very quickly i'm going to start identifying younger people in our community who might have an interest in in political leadership and start giving them the experience the exposure the connections um, just to be ready so that if i have the privilege of being elected When I am leaving this office, there is a pool of younger people who are prepared to take over the leadership of this city.
0: We're excited to see how this goes, and we're really happy that you took the time to uh, to spend with us uh, this morning, Um, and uh, we wish you luck.
1: Thank you very much, and thanks for this opportunity.